Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, We are getting close to Election Day 2020, and because of that, we're sticking to the theme of bringing in people who are keen observers of politics in North Carolina, and one of those is a frequent guest from this program, fellow by the name of John Hood, who's been with us a number of times and is a regular panelist, amongst other things, on Tom Campbell's North Carolina Spin program. He uh, usually represents uh, two, uh, one of two conservative members of the panel of that uh, group. Uh, they also have, of course, always two liberal, uh, 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 I say liberals, people with more liberal views than the other side of the table. I guess that's the way. John, you've always enjoyed that program a great deal, and you've added a lot to it, and, and you've always added a lot of insight to this program. So we appreciate you being with us. Well, thanks for saying that and having me back. You're a wonderful person. Most people don't have me back after the first time, so I appreciate your generosity. (laughs) Well, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, we usually start this program off by saying something like, well, it's been another unusual week. And uh, I guess it's been happening since about March. Uh, Every week seems to bring new surprises. But as we work toward the election, a number of things are coming into focus here. And, uh, of course, everyone is looking at the uh, potential debates and, and uh, the town hall meetings and so forth. And, and many, many people, uh, a large majority, have already made up their mind. And uh, so that's, that, I think that's the first question I've got to ask you is, at this point in time, and of course a number of people have already voted, uh, but at this point in time, how many people actually change their views? Uh, we know how, what the undecided number is, but how many people are subject to changing their opinions of the candidates that they're seeking uh, to have to select from? Well, the, the short answer to your question is not many, but then the addendum to that short answer is, but enough. In other words, there aren't very many truly undecided voters anymore. There aren't nearly as many people as there used to be who split their tickets, vote Democrat for one office, Republican for another. In North Carolina, for example, that used to be a quarter of the vote sometimes, where people would split their tickets, sometimes even more. It's nothing like that today. Now, that having been said, it's still enough to matter. As we saw in 2016, we had two of the most spectacularly unpopular presidential candidates in American history. They were running against each other. There were some voters who didn't like either one of them. They weren't sure what they were going to do. They got into October. And frankly, the disclosure that the federal government was reopening its investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails and laptop and all that, that probably swung a few voters in a few key states to either be for Donald Trump or to vote third party, which was historically high. The third party vote was one of the highest third party votes other than the Perot years. It was one of the highest third party votes we've seen in a long time. What they didn't do, some of those, is break for Clinton. And that's why she isn't president. It isn't because of some chicanery. It isn't some, you don't need an elaborate explanation. You just, that, that last ditch October news surprise flipped a few votes or at least pulled a few votes over to a candidate that a lot of those folks didn't really like, Donald Trump, but they didn't like Hillary Clinton even more. And so in 2020, 
There are even fewer voters in the presidential race who haven't already made up their minds. It's a very small percentage. It's unlikely to make any difference in most states. But if North Carolina is razor thin, if Florida is razor thin, if Pennsylvania somehow becomes razor thin, then those undecided votes will matter. Now, as you go down the ballot, Don, there are quite a few more people. There might only be a couple of percentage points left in the presidential race to move, but that's not true when you get down into even the governor's race, certainly council of state races, the U.S. Senate race. You can see there are still uh, two or three or four times that many undecided voters. Some of them won't vote at all in those races. There is ballot drop off as you go down the ballot, but some will end up voting with their party and a few will split their tickets. That might be Donald Trump voters who vote for Roy Cooper for governor. They might be Joe Biden voters who vote for Tom Tillis for U.S. Senate. Uh, there aren't very many of these types of voters left on, but in a state like North Carolina, they matter. They don't matter in New York or California or, or even Texas because they, there's not enough of them to sway the vote because the base of one party is, is so much larger than the other. That's not true in North Carolina, so it matters. Well, of course, in a, in a two-horse race, when one vote changes, it is a two-vote difference. In other words, if it's 50-50 and one vote changes, it moves to 51-49, which is a two-vote difference. Uh, you know, that's that's another big thing about changes. Uh, by the way, I, you know, I wanted to uh, sort of, uh, I guess, challenge you on one thought when you said that we had two of the most unpopular candidates running last time. They were very extremely popular with their true base. Donald Trump was very popular with his real base. Hillary Clinton was very popular with her real base. Now, the basis, uh, as, and I think this is where you, you were actually heading, the, the base vote is still small uh, of those who just truly uh, were big advocates for their particular candidate back in uh, 2016. And uh, would you agree with that? Yes, you could think about it as sort of circles inside each other. And if you look at, say, the Republican Party circle, imagine a red circle that's about 45 percent of the total votes cast in the country or 46 or 47 percent, maybe. And within that circle, there's a darker red circle that's maybe 20 or 25 percent of the total electorate. And that was the base that Trump did thrill. You're right. But then this additional group of red voters, they voted for Trump. They didn't like so much love him, but they voted for him. And then a few purple voters sort of snuck in at the last minute because they didn't like Trump and they disliked Hillary Clinton even more. So you could have people vote for a candidate and not like them. We've seen that in many elections. It's just in 2016, that was larger than ever before. We had something like, I'm remembering off the top of my head, maybe 60 or 70 percent of the entire country who disliked Donald Trump and disliked that a similar percentage disliked Hillary Clinton. And of course, there were some people who disliked both. And that's what I mean by historically disliked. Of course, they had their hardcore bases. But the only reason they won, the only reason Donald Trump won for president is because a lot of people who didn't like him at all voted for him anyway. Lots of uh, attention on North Carolina because it is a purple state and it is a, an important state as far as electoral votes. So if you were giving advice, and we'll take both candidates, if you were giving advice to Joe Biden and also to Donald Trump, what would you say at this point in time to uh, appeal to North Carolina voters? How would you 
direct your campaign at this point in time? Well, it's very late in the game, but imagine we were having this conversation months ago and the candidates could still sort of steer their messaging and their and the, the character they're presenting. My advice to Donald Trump is what would have been and would still be uh, express very clearly that you take coronavirus seriously. You don't have to agree with everything that the Democrats want to do about it. You've got your own plans. But uh, one of his challenges is some of his base that would normally vote for him are not sure that he has been taking the pandemic seriously. And then to Joe Biden, I would say your primary message should be, uh, I will give you a breather. You're exhausted. We're all exhausted. Donald Trump dominates the headlines every single day. I won't. I, I will govern the country. I will do my, my job. But you won't hear from me all the time. I won't comment on everything that happens every day. Uh, I think that would be a powerful message for the people who still aren't still are not sold on Joe Biden and don't even necessarily agree with his views, agree with his policies, but might vote for something like a breath of fresh air or, or at least a, 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 a non-labored sort of relaxing breath for a few years. Pretty much everybody knows, Don, that Joe Biden is not going to be a two-term president. He's not. It seems very unlikely. Uh, he is running to serve a single term. He's a transitional figure, more or less admittedly. I think he should embrace that and say, uh, you know, voting for me is not going to settle every issue that faces America, but you won't have to hear and see Donald Trump all the time and, and Donald Trump's enemies all the time. You want to hear, you won't, you won't have to be part of this drama all the time because I will be a more normal president. I think that's a powerful message for the undecided vote to the extent there, there are still some. On the whole, uh, Donald Trump's tweets, which are frequent and sometimes confusing, on the whole, would you say they have, uh, one, uh, consolidated his base, but secondly, probably uh, lost him overall votes? Would you agree with that? Yes, I think that's correct. They have strengthened his relationship with Republicans. His approval rating, of course, is now very high among Republicans and the, the tweets are really aimed at Republican voters. Um, but it hasn't increased his overall political coalition. In fact, his political coalition right now looks to be a bit smaller than it was in 2016. And remember, in 2016, it was smaller than Mitt Romney's coalition. It just was distributed more efficiently. So he got fewer votes in places where Mitt Romney got votes, but didn't matter. Like he got fewer, Donald Trump got fewer votes in California. Uh, than Mitt Romney. He got fewer votes in some heavily Republican states even than, than Mitt Romney, but those were not the states in play. In play were those Midwestern states where Donald Trump did do a little bit better, thanks in part to third parties uh, siphoning votes away from Hillary Clinton. And uh, so a smaller coalition is probably not a long-term plan for, for a party. Um, I, I think, I mean, it's easy to say he should stop tweeting so much, but just because something is easy doesn't mean it's it's wrong. <laughs> he should stop tweeting so much. He should have stopped tweeting so much a long time ago. And they should have been thinking more about changing his image or presenting a different kind of an image to the voters who don't already love him. John Hood is our guest. He is, of course, uh, well, we, we didn't properly introduce you. We introduced you as a panelist on Tom Campbell's program. That's not how you make your living. Well, that's the most important thing I do, though. Well, that's prob that probably is true. <laughs> We'll be back with another segment with John Hood, and we will do that right after we take time out for this, these messages. Ah, psst, psst. 
Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. If you love them enough to sit through their favorite boy band with them, then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with John Hood here on Carolina Newsmakers as we are approaching the 2020 election. Uh, it is dominating the airways. North Carolina is seeing unusual amounts of money spent on this state because it is in play, uh, both on the presidential race and, of course, the senatorial race is very, very important nationally. And that's the reason so many millions of dollars are being poured into the campaign. So we want to talk a little bit about that now, because that's a race that, as I said, nationally is very important to the Republican Party because it could decide whether or not the Republicans uh, maintain control of the United States Senate. Uh, this campaign changed, I guess, in nature when revelations of Cal Cunningham's uh, affair uh, with a uh, uh, extramarital extra affair uh, came to light. And yet that hasn't seemed to change the polls too much. What do you what do you make of that, John? Well, if you look at the polls that have been taken after the disclosure about Cal Cunningham uh, and his uh, affairs, uh, it doesn't show much change in the horse race, but it does show a significant increase in, in Cunningham's negatives and people vote people having an unfavorable impression rather than a favorable impression. Uh, that may pre that may precede as polls additional polls are taken this month that then the actual preference between the two candidates may change we've seen that in the past sometimes events like this don't create an immediate change in the polling it takes a couple of weeks to really see it so it is possible uh, that this will uh, still change this complexion of the race I think Tillis is is interestingly uh, responded to this event. He certainly has mentioned it or pointed to it, but he's been explicitly saying now, uh, I still think Donald Trump can and will be, re can and should be reelected. But even if he's not, you should vote for me, Tom Tillis, because 
a Democratic president ought to be checked by a Republican Congress. I think that's an interesting issue. People often discount the idea that voters carefully balance, well, if one party is going to be in charge of this, then I don't want them to be in charge of everything. Well, of course, the vast majority of voters don't think in those terms, but some do. And Tom Tillis is going after. And in fact, Cunningham's ads and his message, um, he, he often says that he'll be against members of his own party if he thinks they're wrong. He's also been conveying an independence. Uh, both candidates are stressing to those people who haven't yet made up their minds uh, that the that as senator they would they would do what they think is right and not always what their party thinks is right. Uh, that's an interesting development, and it depends somewhat on people's perceptions of trust, and that's where Cunningham's I think political problem. It's not so much the extracurricular extramarital activity uh, because people have discounted that kind of behavior in their politicians before. What they don't like is someone who pretends to be one thing and then does another because it makes them wonder if they can if they can trust the candidate's word on substantive matters. That's what Cunningham still has a risk, I think. Well, and of course, there continue to be rumors, and I stress these are rumors, that there's additional uh, information coming out on Cunningham. And of course, that uh, uh, would be another uh, interesting uh, thing if another incident of some kind or another comes out, uh, that would probably be a more serious blow than the first one. And it's notable, Don, that uh, Cunningham was asked by reporters multiple times if there were other affairs or other incidents that would come to light. He declined to answer those questions. I think that's somewhat telling. I, I, again, I don't know what else is coming down the pike. There has already been reporting of a second affair from the same source that apparently correctly reported the existence of the first affair. So it's certainly possible. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I think whenever politicians get caught with something, they're better off just coming clean quickly because dragging it out and letting it happen over several weeks makes it more interesting. It makes the story more interesting and probably draws more eyeballs to it. Interestingly enough, the incumbency of North Carolina, United States senators from North Carolina has become less and less a factor. And I guess that's because of the coverage of news, primarily from the daily newspapers decline of importance. But neither Senator Burr, who has been in office for a long time, and uh, Tom Tillis, who has obviously been a senator now for five years, name recognition still isn't as high as you as one might think. Well, it's true. You know, since the 1970s, there's only been two U.S. senators who served more than one term since Sam Irvin's retirement in the 70s. And the two senators are Jesse Helms and Richard Burr. All the other senators have only served one term and then left or been defeated. What, interestingly, Helms and Burr followed very different strategies to get to the same place. In other words, having a multiple term career in the Senate. Helms uh, was very public picked a lot of controversial fights. All of his campaigns were, were competitive and expensive. Richard Burr has pursued a very different course of being sort of low key and having not very many huge controversies in public fights. Uh, both were able to get reelected following these very different strategies. Um, Tom Tillis has sort of followed the Richard Burr strategy. He hasn't been all that prominent. He hasn't picked a lot of big controversial fights. The one he did he had a disagreement with President Trump about something uh, and, and found politically that it was difficult to stick to that because his base really wanted 
a loyalist to the Trump administration, uh, but independent voters want some independence. So it, it does put Tillis in a bit of a bind. And you can see that in the polling. He's, he's a little bit behind Trump in most of these polls. That reflects Trump voters who aren't entirely sold on Tillis. It's not clear he can make up enough in the undecided or sort of soft Democratic base and bring them over to Tillis to make a difference if he can't get a solid vote from Republicans. What Tillis and Republicans are counting on, and they might be right, is that when it comes right down to it, some of those reluctant Republican voters will still vote for Tillis because they want a Republican Senate. So if you were to call this election today, and we're roughly three weeks out, how would you call the outcome of that race? I still think Tillis has a slight edge. I know the polls don't, don't show that yet. I think there are some other fundamentals of the race that suggest Tillis has a perhaps somewhat better than 50-50 shot of being reelected, but I, I, neither result will surprise me. This is, I think, uh, one of the com most competitive races uh, in the country and one of the most competitive Senate races in our history. So if you were advising those two candidates, Gal Cunningham and Tom Tillis, on their campaign strategy for the last three weeks of this election, because they are buying a lot of public exposure, television, radio campaigns, uh, direct mail pieces and so forth. What would your advice be to those two candidates? To Cunningham, I would say stop telling voters that Tom Tillis is loyal to Donald Trump. Part of his message has been that. Uh, the problem is that helps Tillis. Remember, Tillis would probably be, he would be two or three points higher in the polls if Trump voters had more confidence that Tillis was with Trump. And Cunningham is telling those voters, you know what, Tillis is a rubber stamp for Donald Trump. That actually helps Trump Tillis in this situation, in my view. Um, so I would say that to Cunningham. And also, if there's anything else about to come out, you should, you should come out first. You should just say, I, I've made some horrible mistakes and be a little more specific about it and take responsibility for it. He's, to his credit, he didn't deny the affair when it was originally, or at least the first reporting of the affair when it originally happened. That was wise. But if there's other things out there, I think Cunningham should be more uh, explicit in admitting it quickly and trying to make that not be the story as you go into the final weeks of the campaign. As for Tom Tillis, he does have to pull in additional Republican votes who aren't already on his side, but he does need to do that skillfully. He needs to say, you know, I, I support Trump usually. Uh, when Trump uh, is right, I support him. There have been occasions where we've disagreed, but it hasn't been about the goal. It's been about the means or something like that. I think that's his best message to those voters. And then I think he needs to emphasize this notion that if there's going to be a Democratic president, don't you want a check on that president? The House is not going to check him because the House will be Democratic. Don't you think it would be wise to have divided government and make sure that neither party gets too, too out of control? I think that's the kind of message that might swing a few swing voters this way. So far, that has not, uh, to my knowledge, has not been a, uh, an issue that he, do you think they are saving that one for the last push or? He's been or? saying that he, he probably can't run a lot of advertising on that because it will look like he's being disloyal to Trump. So you have to you have to sort of narrow cast that message. It would not shock me if there was some mail that goes out in the last few weeks of the race that targets not Republican voters, but independents uh, saying something like, you know, divided government is dangerous and we need uh, Tom Tillis in the U.S. Senate to make sure uh, that neither party too, gets too much out of control. Something like that is a message you can narrow cast, but you can't broadcast it. 
Okay, so I, I failed to ask you at the end of the first segment uh, your prediction as if the election were tomorrow, who would win on the presidential side of the state of North Carolina? Um, I think Trump is still potentially a winner in North Carolina. I don't think he's a winner nationally. Of course, I said the same thing four years ago and I was wrong. But I think the situation is worse for Trump now than it was four years ago with Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think Trump is, is likely to lose uh, the, the race, but that doesn't mean he couldn't pull out a narrow win in North Carolina. So, uh, and of course, there are several other uh, states that uh, uh, sort of swing states that uh, like Georgia and Texas that, uh, uh, that uh, Trump seems, I mean, Biden continues to improve his status. And of course, that will add to his popular vote, but might not add to his electoral vote. Well, I, I, I don't think those two states will flip to Democrat. But of course, if they do, the race will be uh, will clearly be over. And there's no way, no way North Carolina would vote for Trump and Texas would vote for Biden. That's not going to happen. I still think that the fate of Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are probably the, the key ones to look at. Uh, Repub Trump can win some other red states, but if he loses uh, in those Midwestern battlegrounds, he still doesn't quite get over the finish line. Our guest is John Hood, and in the next segment, we're going to look at North Carolina's congressional districts and uh, ask John for his view and opinion on how those races are coming, because for the most part, uh, all of those districts have been changed somewhat and uh, due to the redistricting, and we will get his views on that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but... I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. John Hood is with us this week. He's been with us a number of times through the years, and usually he has a word. Uh, John's vocabulary is, uh, uh, I guess, extensive is the best word I can use. And uh, and I, I must say, he is very proud of his vocabulary. And so I usually give him the chance to spring a new word on me, Um uh, and uh, so I'm going to give you that chance right now, John. What's the, the new word of the day that I should know that you do know? Well, Tom, or Don, we're not usually recording this show in this format. 
And so I'm a little thrown off by it. It's, it's maybe a little catawampus. Catawampus, okay. And so I'm, I'm not sure that I can really deliver on that vocabulary word that you usually ask for me, but, you know, maybe next time I won't be catawampus. And, uh, okay, so now give me a definition of catawampus. Um, a skew, off balance, a little off track. Oh, well, uh, some people I'm, think that it's related to a legendary creature called the wampus cat okay. uh, that, that lives in the mountains. Um, well, I just think it's a fun, fun word, cattywampus. There are a number of people who would say that I was cattywampus, so we'll, we'll let it go with that. Okay. Uh, we, uh, I would say you're a cool cat. That's a cool cat. Okay. Thank you. Uh, in the last, uh, and by the way, uh, what John was referring to is the fact that we're doing this by Zoom. John's in his office. I'm in my office and Jason Hood is in the studio. So we are not in the same room as we are usually or were uh, uh, as, a, as a practice back before uh, COVID-19 became dominant in our lives. You, you mean, of course, Jason Kong. What, who did so, I say? So Jason Hood has a great ring to it. I must oh, say. did I say Jason Hood? You did. Well, you know, I don't know who to apologize to, so I'll let, <laughs> I'll let that one go. Uh, the congressional districts in North Carolina obviously uh, have been reset, and that means that there is going to be, uh, by, if, if all falls true, at least a change in the makeup of the United States congressional delegation. Uh, right now it's 10-3 and uh, it, it's likely to change. So sort of go through that and and, and emphasize any uh, of the districts that you think may be more surprising than we had, had anticipated. Um, I think when we have congressional races, they're contested. I think the vast majority of them will be unsurprising. Uh, it isn't that the districts are gerrymandered in some horrible way anymore. They have been redrawn. I'm not saying they couldn't be fairer. They could be, I suppose. But this is really just because people have kind of gravitated towards the parts of the state that where their neighbors more or less share their views. Of course, there are hardcore conservative Republicans who live in downtown Durham, a few. I probably know all three of them. There are some uh, hard left progressives uh, who live in places like Cabarrus County and Johnston County. But for the most part, people have sorted themselves out intentionally or not. And so most of these congressional races, Don, are not competitive. Uh, they're very unlikely to change. I'll give you a couple of counterexamples, though. One of them is the 8th District, Congressional District. This stretches from, from Cabarrus County, from the outskirts of Charlotte, through the central part of the state to the outskirts of Fayetteville. Richard Hudson is the Republican incumbent, but this district's quite a bit different than it was before. He faces a spirited challenge from Patricia Timmons Goodson, who is a uh, former uh, justice on the court, Supreme Court. Um, and Timmons Goodson is a, uh, a well-organized uh, well campaign. She's a good candidate. Uh, this district is more competitive than it used to be. That's, some, that's a district people are watching as a potential upset of the incumbent, who's Richard Hudson. Then in the 11th district out in the mountains, Madison Cawthorn is a Republican nominee. This is an open seat. Uh, he would be going into the seat that was that was held by Mark Meadows, now the chief of staff to, to President Trump. Cawthorn is young. Uh, he's inexperienced. There's some mistakes there. This is a Republican-leaning district, and Mo Davis, the Democratic candidate, is 
probably one of the better recruits as you could imagine as far as having a military background. But he's also an undisciplined and, and uh, untested candidate. I'm talking about the Democrat. He's also made some mistakes, including some rather uh, offensive comments online. So I don't think this is going to be as much of a potential upset place as the 8th district, but it is possible. There are Democrats who think they're going to win that 11th district with a strong turnout from the Democratic base. So um, what will, in your opinion, uh, assuming those two races uh, continue on the track of their registration, uh, so what do you count now? Is it going to be eight and five or? No, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be unchanged. It'll, it'll, well, it's not going to be unchanged. It's just that the, 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 uh, the Democrats are sure to gain a couple of seats as the map was redrawn, one of yep. them in, in Wake County area with, uh, uh, oh, goodness, um, Senate candidate from two years ago who is a longtime friend of mine and for some reason De- I'm, De- space, Deborah I'm Ross. sorry, De- Deborah Ross, yeah. Uh, so she will win the congressional seat, the new one in the triangle. Uh, Kathy Manning will win a seat uh, in the western part of the state that had been Mark Walker's, but it's been redrawn. Walker is not in the picture. So the Democrats will pick up a couple of seats, but they are hoping they might be able to luck out and pick up one or two more. I don't think so. Uh, the uh, race that uh, Deborah Ross is involved in has been extremely quiet uh, because I guess that one is just so uh, Democratic that there's, there's just not much of a point to uh, campaign a great deal. And Deborah Ross's campaign has been very, very quiet compared to the others in, in, in years past. That's right. I, I agree with that. So I think there will be five Democrats in that congressional delegation. Yeah. But there's well, a possibility of one or two more. Yeah. Uh, any uh, changes in the council of state positions? Uh, uh, you know, we've got, uh, I guess, almost all incumbents are running except for Secretary of Labor and, and uh, Public Instruction. That's correct. Uh, do you think the incumbents are going to hold court? Um, that is hard to say. There are some incumbents who I do think face real challenges. One of them is the labor commissioner, uh, Mike. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the labor commissioner race is open. I'm thinking of the insurance commissioner. That's Mike Causey. Um, he, he looks like a hero in many ways because he helped to uncover a corruption scandal involving campaigns for and actions by the Department of Insurance. But the former commissioner of insurance, Wayne Goodwin, who's also chair of the Democratic Party, North Carolina, he held the office before. He's, he's fairly well known. He's running a spirited campaign. That, that's a real dogfight. And then look at the attorney general's race. This is one of the more surprising events in state politics recently. People assumed, I think, because of significant fundraising advantages and other reasons that Josh Stein, the incumbent Democratic uh, attorney general, would be fine. But he faces a real challenge from a Republican candidate, Jim O'Neill, who's a district attorney in Forsyth County. Um, The polls show that race very close, very competitive. And I think Stein recognizes that it's competitive. He'll outspend uh, the Republican. But that's a possibility of a flip. But look at a race like Steve Troxler for agriculture commissioner or Elaine Marshall, a Democrat for secretary of state. Those incumbents are safe. What about uh, the state treasurer's position? That's another very competitive race. Dale Falwell, the Republican, is is facing a challenge from Ronnie Chatterjee, uh, the Democratic nominee, a professor at Duke. Uh, This is a race that it's interesting. There are some interest groups on either side of it. The State Employees Association of North Carolina um, usually assumes 
you would assume that state employees would prefer Democrats over Republicans. That is often true, but it is not true. In this case, they're supporting Dale Falwell, the Republican, in part because he's done a lot of things to save money for the teachers and state employees health plan and, and pension fund. Um, and Ronnie Chatterjee, though, has support from other groups traditionally associated with Democrats. That's an area where uh, the Republican vote will certainly go for Dale Falwell, but he's also playing for some of those crossover votes. I think he might get them and be reelected, but it's another very competitive race, as is Superintendent of Public Instruction, a race that until 2016 was always won by the Democrats. Mark Johnson won, but his tenure on in, in the job was sort of unsteady. He didn't run for re-election for that job. So the Republican candidate is Catherine Truitt, who used to work for Pat McCrory, used to be a classroom teacher, currently runs Western Governors University Online. So she's chancellor of the university. Jen Mangrum, the Democratic candidate, also a former teacher, currently a professor at UNC Greensboro. Uh, I think very competitive and very substantive race. Truett uh, and Mangrum have had some debates, they've had some exchanges, and they've been very substantive and, and actually, I think, very instructive of the big issues facing North Carolina education, the biggest one of which is how quickly can we get schools reopened? Another race that has been uh, relatively quiet and part of it is because uh, uh, a lot of people have always assumed that it's a part of a, uh, of a slate, but the in North Carolina, the governor and the lieutenant governor are separate and not a part of a, uh, a slate. Uh, how do you uh, view that race and how's that one likely to come out? Well, there are two, two things to remember about this race. First of all, both of the major party nominees are African-American. So there will be a black lieutenant governor in North Carolina. Uh, the second thing is there's an insider-outsider dynamic here. The Republican candidate, Mark Robinson, has never run for office before. As far as I know, he's never been really involved much in party politics before. He's a business owner. He sort of came to the fore with some passionate speeches on behalf of uh, the Bill of Rights and Second Amendment uh, in Greensboro. And somehow got the Republican nomination through a kind of a viral campaign. So he's the outsider. And Yvonne uh, Holly is the insider. She's a multiple term state legislator. She comes from a family of political activists in, in Raleigh. Uh, so she's the Democratic nominee. She, re she represents experience and knowledge about state government. And Mark Robinson's the insurgent outsider. The polls show this race is also statistical dead heat. Well, and, and of course, one of the things that's very difficult for all of these uh, down-ballot candidates is the fact that uh, because uh, time on television or radio stations is limited and the uh, two uh, top races uh, for president and senate are buying so much time that these candidates uh, not only have a difficult time raising money, uh, but also have a difficult time buying exposure. And, and of course, because they are relatively unknown compared to the others, that makes it even more difficult. Well, our, our guest is John Hood, and we'll be back with one final segment here on Carolina Newsmakers. And we will do that right after we take time out for these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck. 
that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Again, we're back on Carolina Newsmakers, and of course, the topic that we're discussing is the upcoming election, because that's dominating the news, dominating the airways, dominating uh, social media, dominating uh, uh, a number of things. And uh, as we have said a number of times (laughs) during the last three or four months, times are certainly different. Our guest is John Hood, and we've asked John because he is a keen observer of politics in North Carolina. Um, and uh, he has uh, given us his views, and his uh, one of the questions we asked him along the way on the program was, what advice would you give to the two candidates for each of the races that we've discussed as far as the rest of the campaign? And that's been an interesting uh, uh, to listen to those comments. And if you'd like to hear those, if you are joining us late, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the two segments that uh, – you might have missed if you're listening to the stations that carry the half-hour version, or if you'd like to hear the entire broadcast, you can do that as well. So, John, welcome back again for this final segment. And um, as we sort of complete conclude this broadcast, I guess all elections are somewhat different. This one is clearly different. And uh, North Carolina being the purple state that it is, uh, everyone nationwide is watching the Tom Tillis, uh, Kyle Cunningham race. And, of course, uh, uh, we've already commented on that one. But I guess nationwide, that's the focus that uh, uh, the nation will be looking at North Carolina. Uh, so, again, sort of give us a, a summary of how you think that race is is uh, wrapping up. Well, <clears throat> uh, the, the fact that Tom Tillis got COVID and recovered quickly, and the fact that Cal Cunningham had the, the news break about uh, cheating on his wife, uh, th- those have those were unforeseen events. I think <laughs> they changed the race a, a little bit. They didn't change it a great deal because, as we've talked about throughout the show, most people are locked in. They were locked in months ago. But in the Senate race, there's still enough people who are probably weighing these matters and thinking about what they're going to do, wondering if they really ought to stray from their own party's base their own party's list and go with somebody else. Truly independent voters, and I don't mean people who are registered unaffiliated, that's a lot of people, including me, but I mean people who really have no party leanings, which is a very small number. It's not the whole independent group. It's a small subset of the independent group. They're probably still weighing, what's the most important thing to me? Do I think the biggest issue is President Trump has messed up Uh, response to the coronavirus, and we need a federal government that takes it seriously. If that's the case, they probably will associate Tillis with Trump on that issue, and they'll probably go with Cunningham. On the other hand, if voters are thinking about the economy, and many are, and how do we get the economy moving again, that's still an area where the Republicans in the polling have a bit of an advantage. 
And so if they figure either they're going to vote for Trump on the economy, they don't like him necessarily, they don't like his tweets, but they think he's best for the economy, they'll probably vote for Tillis as well. Then there'll be a third group of people who assume Biden is going to be president. And the question is, do you give him a U.S. senator that will help him carry out the Democratic agenda, in which case you go with Cunningham? Or do you want to check Biden? You might think it's okay if Biden becomes president because you want to break from the Trump drama and all that, but you don't necessarily want the hard left, the Democrats, to run wild in Washington. And so you vote for Tillis as a check, as a, as a way to keep things more balanced and, and less out of control in the nation's capital. I think those three groups of undecided voters, there's still some in each of those categories, and they matter a lot. And the campaigns know that, and they're pitching to those voters right now, either explicitly in uh, flights of broadcast ads, as you talked about, Don, or through mail and email and other things that are more under the radar and really targeted. Remember, that's a lot of where politics is going, is more targeted messaging, digital advertising, still the old-fashioned mail. Lots of campaign consultants on both sides will tell you uh, they think some of the best bang for their buck is sending a card, a piece of paper to people's mailboxes. They know exactly who they're sending it to. It's not going to be captured by a junk mail filter. Uh, people aren't going to miss it as they're scrolling through their phone. And because people get less junk mail in their mailbox than they used to, it kind of stands out. I got, I went to my mailbox yesterday, Don, and I think I had two actual pieces of mail and I had five mailers candidates. So that was all that was in my mailbox. And so I looked at the mailers. I mean, maybe I'm norm, maybe I'm weird, which is of course stipulated to be true. But I think a lot of people still look at a mailer, at least the front or back of a mailer. And that's where some of the money is going. By the way, I should say, we've been talking about these statewide races and the congressional races. Remember the legislature is also up for grabs <clears throat> in 2020. And some people who are involved in North Carolina politics and public policy would say control of the General Assembly is more important than who's a governor or who's the labor commissioner. <laughs> uh, and so that that control, which the Democrats are trying to take back from the Republicans after 10 years, is also up for grabs. The Democrats need only six seats in the House and five in the Senate to have outright majorities in those chambers. There are enough competitive seats where that could happen. The Republicans think they've got enough support in enough places to keep it from happening. But that's the thing, probably the unanswered question that I'll be most looking for hints about as we start to see election returns come in. What have we learned about early voting and mail-in ballots uh, that uh, uh, makes this election uh, of special interest? Well, we learned that lots of people are willing to vote by mail if they feel it's best, if they don't want to risk getting sick, if they don't want to worry about going to a crowded polling place and standing in a long line. So we have a lot, we have hundreds of thousands of people who've voted by mail who've never done it before. So we've learned that people are willing to do that. And we've also learned that a small but maybe important percentage of those folks who've never done it before will mess their ballots up. Now, this is not a theory about elaborate voter fraud shenanigans or something. This is just people making mistakes failing to get their witness to sign the ballot, making other kinds of errors, maybe maybe sending it in too late. And so I'm a little worried we're going to have some people who intended to vote but messed their ballots up and weren't able to do that. Uh, but generally what we've learned from early voting in the past and what I think we may learn this time is there's a whole lot of attention on the mode of voting. And people think it matters that there's all these votes early. 
It probably doesn't. It prob- mo- the vast majority of people who vote early would have voted anyway. The vast majority of people who vote by mail would have voted early or voted in, on election day. So we probably make a bigger deal about these differing modes of voting than we should. I think it's fine. I think it's good that we have multiple choices of how to vote. I think that's fine. But I think sometimes we make it more of a fetish than a real indicator about what's going to happen in the election. So uh, do we anticipate a record vote in North Carolina? Um, I'm not convinced of that. I think we'll have a solid high turnout. I'm not sure it'll be historically high. I'm just not sure that's true. I don't see evidence for that yet, but it might be. Uh, If we were seeing that, I think we would see a stronger trend when it comes to voter registration than we've seen. So I I think we'll have a a high turnout, but not historically high turnout. Uh, Of course, on many of these matters, I was wrong in 2016. So I'm prepared to be wrong again. Well, you know, uh, and we've got a very short time to answer this question, but surveying and polling is far more difficult than it's ever been before. It is. It's challenging the getting the, the model right. This is not just about getting people to fill out your questionnaire or answer the phone. Modeling who's going to vote has become harder and harder, and that's why polls uh, are a little shakier than they used to be, in my view. Yep. Well, John, thank you again for being with us and giving us your observations on these important races. I'm sorry we didn't spend enough time perhaps talking about the North Carolina General Assembly, and, and uh, we will look forward to having you on after the election for your observations of how it turned out. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or the two segments that you might have missed, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Jason will have another guest for us again next week as we get closer to the election, and we're going to stay focused on, on those issues during this time. Till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.